welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where Catholic truth is served fresh daily. We've made you a reservation in the luxurious corner booth, so come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzezemski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, sitting in a luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe, the French Catholic Cafe. Robert, we are like knee-deep in cafe lattes here, we cappuccinos. Are. We are pilgrimage lords. Um, and interesting, now Deacon Jeff, I don't want any lawyer jokes today. You know, I'm a lawyer, but you've got another lawyer as a guest. <laughs> yeah, but, kind, but, but uh, a different by... kind of lawyer, yeah. but still a lawyer, That's a right. canon lawyer. Yeah. Uh, but... We have Father Luke Millette. See, this, we meet so many interesting people. Father Luke, welcome to the, the Luxurious Corner Booth of Catholic Well, Cafe. thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And we meet so many. Uh, you probably have some good lawyer jokes. Probably there's there may be like are a there whole, canon lawyer yeah, jokes? Yeah, that's what <laughs> No, we just stick with the uh, civil lawyer jokes. They work okay. just as well for us. Yeah, sometimes they they do. I'm sure. Uh, but you are the judicial vicar at the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston. So we bump into people here on pilgrimage, uh, and it's like, well, canon law. You know, I don't think we've ever really done a show about canon law and why it's important and judicial vicars just what all that stuff first of all what is a judicial vicar so it's easy for americans to kind of understand this but canon law itself has divisions within the law just as in american civil law we have an executive branch a legislative branch and a judicial branch the same thing happens in canon law the difference is that all this power is vested in the bishop so the bishop has the executive power to make administrative decisions. He has legislative power to make laws. And he also has judicial power to make judgments. Mm. But this power can be shared with other people. And one of the ways it's shared is every diocese is required to have someone called the judicial vicar, who is the vicar who shares them vicariously and exercises vicariously the power of the bishop in the judicial forum, which allows him to make judgments and to rule on cases. Right. Now, that's usually not just any old priest or any old person, right? There's typically an expertise kind of involved. Correct, correct. And, and what would that expertise be? What do you have to kind of study and know about? So the first requirement would be that you have to have at least a license um, in canon law. So that means you have to go through a three-year law school program where you study the law of the church. And after that program, you are licensed to practice that law and to teach that law anywhere in the world. So that's the minimum requirement that's there to be a judicial vicar, plus there are requirements of age and um, prudence and things like that. I'm yeah, not right. sure how I'm doing on the prudence side, but at least I've met the age you, and you law requirement. Doesn't he look prudent? Yeah, pretty prudent to me. Yeah, yeah. exactly right, if we're, if we're judges. But I will, I will say that uh, that all sounds very legal, and sometimes even the church might criticize uh, be criticized rather ab- about like its um, its juridical practices and every it seems so heavy handed and they mm-hmm. they picture you know you as a judicial vicar sitting, sitting up on this bench you know swinging the gavel exactly I mean and now that may be an image that some people have and maybe people have had some uh, experiences with uh, with the local uh, church and the judicial aspects of the church through uh, the process of annulments or uh, other uh, judgments and things that might be handed down or, or mm-hmm. things that have to take place. Um, but maybe we should back up and now as a judicial vicar, we're talking about the law. Exactly. What, what is the law that we're talking about? So whenever people ask me about this, I think the most important thing is to first talk about the purpose of the law and why it's there. You've probably heard the phrase for the last thing that's said is the most important. And that's the same mm-hmm. in the Code of Canon Law as well. And the last canon, what we hear is that in all things, remember the supreme law of the church, which is the salvation of souls. 
That really sets the tone for the entire book of the Code of Canon Law. Everything in the Code of Canon Law is oriented towards one thing, which is salvation of souls. So all the laws that are there, which cover a wide range of issues, they cover everything from the rights of the faithful right. to the rights and duties of priests, of bishops, to um, religious orders, to selling of goods, to how to penalize someone when they've done something they shouldn't. It covers all these issues, but all of them are covered through the lens of salvation of souls. Yeah, but again, a lot of people may have, may be surprised to hear some of that because it just seems like, well, when you have laws, you know, it's like this list of thou shalt nots. Uh, and then there's the, the uh, what most people know about canon law is they'll, they'll, hear, they'll, they'll pass out this word. You've heard it before, excommunication, right? Do we right. hear that like this looming uh, great big iron whatever fist that comes crashing down? Right. And, but that's totally, um, that's totally different than what you're talking about with this, this final canon that's helping to orient the law not from a, 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 a punishment aspect so much as it is how to elevate the, the human dignity, the, the person, so that we uh, uh, make ourselves uh, ready for eternity with God. Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, you mentioned excommunication. I think this can be seen very clearly in what we call the penal law of the church. Right. Because often if you look at civil society, you would think of penalties and penal law, penal law as being something to penalize someone, to take them out of society, and to make sure they don't harm someone somewhere else. Aspects of that are present in our law, but our law is really focused on penal law on three issues, on reforming the sinner, on restoring justice, and repairing scandal. And all of it is through that lens. So even this big word, excommunication, which people use, that you are out of, out of communion with the church, is a very interesting part of the law because excommunication, as soon as the person restores themselves to the unity of the church, the excommunication must be lifted. Right. So again, the point of giving excommunication, the point of penalizing someone in the church, is not to get rid of them or to drive them away, but to drive their heart to conversion so that they will return. Father, what do you do, though? I mean, we talk about this law, and you know, I've heard people say, well, the Catholic Church is too legalistic. Why do you need all these laws? So, I mean, what, what can you kind of give us, I mean, I know we've talked about annulment cases, but is there anything you do other than annulment cases, or why is canon law, why can't we say we just need the Bible? Why do we need another book of laws other than canon law to, to tell us how to behave and how to act? It's a really good question, obviously. <clears throat> There's lots of ways we could approach that. Um, maybe one of the simplest is first to start with the sacraments, to look at the sacraments, because we all know the sacraments as Catholics are what bring us to salvation. They're necessary. And so the law in the church is that which lets us know the sacraments occurred properly. We want to make sure that someone, when they're baptized, are truly baptized. Because if they aren't baptized, then they can't enter into eternal life. When someone's receiving the Eucharist, we want to make sure that Christ truly is present in the Eucharist. And so the laws are there, again, to make sure that we're doing things right. So underneath all of these laws is actually what you were talking about. Underneath all of them, the canon law of the church is a distillation of a few things, of theology, of best practice, and of, if you will, rules and uh, procedural laws and rules of order. But so all of these things help us to, one, understand Scripture in a very distilled way. And so, for example, if you were to look at the sacraments, the first canon on each sacramental section is a theological statement about what the sacrament is, why it's important, and what it does for us as Catholics and Christians. 
it sounds like uh, you keep using the word uh, like like uh, structure or design or organization, and it sounds like it, it gives the the church uh, a formal and an outward sort of appearance of of design and structure as if it's an intended uh, uh, the way the church has been built so rather than see this sort of like loosely drawn together kind of people that are kind of semi-like-minded because I don't know if you remember, but like all throughout history, we've had problems with that as human beings, <laughs> right? We, we, we tend to overstep bounds yeah. quite often. And so that this law, again, not, it's not designed to be heavy-handed. It's, it's, it's designed to give form and structure to something that we can see and that you can, if you show up in Italy or America or wherever, you, you're going you're gonna to have that same structure and form. Correct. No, definitely. Because remember in the creed, what we always pray, we are one holy Catholic apostolic church. When we talk about Catholic, we're talking about universal. And the code is one of those things that helps us to stay universal. So when you go over to Italy, you are participating, receiving things in the same way you would in the United States. The rights you have are the same as they are in the United States. The things that you can do are the same as they are in the United States. This helps all of us to be unified in mind and heart and purpose. Do you do other things, though? Like, I know you hear marriage cases at Judicial Vicar. Is there What else do you do as a candidate? Do you advise the bishop on how to do things? Like, how, what he can do, what he can't do, how he can build a church? I mean, what, what, other than everyone knows annulment cases, but is there any other aspect to your job that you do? Yeah, there, there are many. So obviously, as you said, one of the aspects is dealing with annulments. But as I mentioned, the Code of Canon Law covers the entire life and breadth of the church. So one of the things it deals with is the rights and duties of the faithful. When I talk about the rights and duties, I always like to highlight the fact that whenever we have a right for something in the church, we have a duty to fulfill it. So we have the right to receive the sacraments, which means we have a duty to fulfill and seek holiness in our lives. Now, one of the other things that I often do would be to answer sacramental questions. If a question comes in about how to do something or about whether something is done correctly, or if there's an issue confronting the church in the modern age that we don't know how to answer yet, I'll be asked to draft and create a policy to help address it in light of the in light of the history of the church. It's like a civil lawyer advising a client on how to go about exactly. setting up a company or how you can, you know, comply with labor laws by doing this right. and whatnot. And another area that you would see, although, you know, hopefully not often, but it is an area that often we will we will work in, is if someone does something they shouldn't. Let's say a priest does something he shouldn't, or a lay member of the faithful does something they shouldn't, or promotes something on the radio that they shouldn't it might be something that comes for the bishop, and the bishop has to know how to deal with this. How do we res- respond to this problem? And canon law guides us how to go through that, really based on scriptural methods as well, but how to approach the problem, to first approach it pastorally, and then if need to be, to bring it to a higher level until eventually there might be the need to inflict a penalty, again, in doing so to help them to cur- uh, correct their errors and return to the yeah, fold of the church. Open their eyes and open their heart and realize... Exactly. Uh, what what the Lord is telling them, right, right? and where where He's calling uh, all of us to right. be. So uh, we have we're talking to Father Luke Millette. He is a the judicial vicar for the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston, uh, and we're talking about canon law and the importance of canon law. We got more to talk about with Father Luke about this topic. Uh, before we do that, I want to remind folks at home we got a great website, thecatholiccafe.com. Also, I would love to hear from you, and if I have any canon law questions, Robert, I'm going to forward them on to Father Luke because I don't I can't answer <laughs> those, but I, I would love to hear from you just the same. Uh, send me an email, Deacon Jeff at thecatholiccafe. 
Cafe.com. With that, we'll be right back. I'm Bess Drzemski, and this is another great moment in church history. The relationship between monastery brew houses and the act of Christian hospitality has nestled a special place in Catholic culture for centuries. As monastic life began to take shape across Europe, the art of hospitality and its connection to monastery living took deep root. Before the modern era of roadside inns, travelers used the network of monasteries as way stations between their destinations. Monastic hospitality directed the monks to care for these travelers. The monastic rule of St. Benedict says, Let everyone that comes be received as Christ. The monks abided by this teaching, and each monastery became known for its hospitality and its own unique brand of ale or beer, which was served to thirsty visitors. The work of the monastery was integral to the spiritual life of the monks. Many monasteries were self-sustaining operations with vast tracts of land. The monastic communities relied on the land to provide sustenance for their community. Operating the monastery took hard work and required daily labor from the monks. To sustain themselves, especially during periods of fast, the monks would brew heavy beers and ales. By drinking these fermented concoctions, they were able to stay faithful to their fast, but also able to sustain the energy levels needed for the hard work. Beer was considered liquid bread at the time and enjoyed for its many nutritional properties. As time went on and monasteries became centers of learning and laboratories for science, the monks used their education to perfect the brewing art. They were able to improve production practices and provide this special drink, not only for their own communities, but the villages around them. One particular order of monks, called the Trappist, had become famous all over the world for their beers and ales. The Trappist Order was founded in the Cistercian Monastery of La Trappe, France. The founder of the order felt that the Cistercian Order as a whole was becoming too lax. He instituted strict new rules, and one of the core tenets of the order was that each monastery was to be self-sustaining. The Trappist monks looked to the brew houses that already existed within their walls and began brewing beers and ales for sale to the public. Some of these Trappist monasteries are still brewing beers and ales that can be found at your local grocery store. They are considered to be some of the highest quality and most robust and flavorful ales and beers in production today. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And we're back in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, sitting here with Robert Hutton. We're talking to Father Luke Millette, and he is the judicial vicar for the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston. And uh, we're talking about canon law, Father Luke, and all these interesting... And people might thought like, well, wow, a show about law. I never thought that had been interesting. But this impacts our daily lives. And, in fact, it kind of impacts our eternal lives. Yes, it so does. So profoundly, as you point out. I keep a code of canon law in my office just for reference. I, I, I know enough to be dangerous. See, so I always <laughs> the big heavy questions will go to the judicial vicar, obviously. But every once in a while, people will ask me like, "Well, is, are we allowed to do this, or where right. do you have to be to to be a sponsor? What does it say in canon law?" Right. So where does that all come from? Where does the where does canon law come from? How is it promulgated? 
as you point out, people always want to know exactly what they can do and when they can do yeah, it. Yeah, they're really asking, like, what can I get away with? <laughs> yeah, exactly. As a priest, it's one of the questions you get a lot. How far can I go? <laughs> yeah. And so we see this going back all the way in the history of the church. When you even read the scriptures and the Acts of the Apostles, the questions were, how do I do this? What can I do? What should we do? What shouldn't we do? What can we eat? What can't we eat? What, do we have to be circumcised? All these, these exactly. are important questions, too. And so out of that, they started gathering to discuss these questions. Even the Acts of the Apostles, we see the first, what we call the first council of jerusalem Mm -hmm. the first time the apostles met to debate some of these questions and throughout the history of the church we see that bishops would constantly come together in these councils to figure out what to do what to say what is right what is wrong and then as the bishops would disperse they would create laws in their own diocese those laws would be based on either roman law sometimes or jewish law or germanic law but ultimately it was always law through the lens of scriptures right Over time, what happened was each bishop had laws in their own diocese, and the laws in one diocese may not be the same as the laws in another diocese. Which could be a problematic thing when you have people saying, hey, I'm going over next door because they have a lot better rules Exactly. So what they discovered eventually is they had to bring these laws together and codify them. And this happened in the Middle Ages, the first codification of all of these laws that were scattered throughout the Catholic world. So they created a new body of laws which then over time had to be revamped and looked at again in right. light of the changes of the world, in light of new questions that, that came. What I often talk about with my students is the laws are there because someone did something against them. We don't just automatically say that, oh, you can't... You can't, you can't right. uh, eat Cheetos before Mass. Exactly. Right. You it's know, the an law, arbitrary kind of... Exactly. <laughs> the law becomes there because someone did it, and we realize sure. that that is not a good thing. Well, that's the same thing with civil law. Exactly. Like, we never defined the question of uh, what marriage being between a man and a woman or whether two men could get married. Never even came up to the 20th, 21st century. Exactly. Because right. it was never even questioned before. But uh, then you have to address, no, marriage is between a man and a woman, or you have to make exactly. uh, decisions like exactly. that. Exactly. And so over time, the law began to expand a little bit. But as with all things, you don't want the law to become this big, clunky thing. Right. Because in the end, again, its focus is to get us into heaven. And so they would constantly revamp the law and try to bring it down to its core truth. To what be are as streamlined the, as possible. Exactly. That makes sense. And so in 1917, they revamped the code again, and they brought together all these disparate laws into one place and made a new code. Well, something important happened after 1917, which was the Second Vatican Council. Yeah. And so before the Second Vatican Council and during it, they said, you know, we need to have the laws reworked and rewritten for the church to reflect what's going on right here. Well, they wanted this to happen kind of during the council. Well, they realized we can't really redo the law until we know what the council says. So these laws were eventually recodified and rewritten, some of it being exactly the same as before, some of it being different, which came out in 1983. Even though it was 1983, many canonists will talk about how the code of canon law that we have now is the last document of Vatican II. Okay, because it's a result of that. Exactly. But this might also give you a false understanding of the law, because the law is not a stagnant thing. It's a living thing. So even though we have this book, the Code of 1983, or the Code of Canon Law of 1983, since then there have been major, major changes and revisions to the law, which have occurred. And so the Code of Canon Law is still a living document. One of the most recent changes, which I'm sure we're all aware of, is that Pope Francis came out and changed many of the laws regarding marriage regarding, properly speaking, 
around those who are seeking an annulment in the church about how that occurs, about the process for it, and about the rules that are used in judging that. But not the theology of marriage. No, the theology of marriage didn't change at all. But what he did, for example, before um, to receive an annulment, someone had to receive two affirming decisions in two separate courts. Pope Francis said that's just taking the people way too long. Because many people were suffering through five years or ten years of waiting for this to occur. And many countries didn't have the staff to run these processes. And stuff would stack up and it would sit there and exactly. it would get pushed to the back exactly. of the stack. And then people would have this long problematic. There's a desire to either receive the sacraments exactly. or to um, uh, come into the church and all these different things. I right. deal with this in RCIA every single year. Yeah, and so you see it. Many, many Catholics have a great desire to be back in the church, to fully receive from the church. But a roadblock is the fact that they've been previously married in the church right. and then possibly been remarried later on. Um, a misconception is often there, though, that to maybe address right now, if you were married in the church before and haven't remarried, you are not blocked from the sacraments. Right. We don't kick divorced people out. Exactly. The issue is when they're married in the church and then become married again outside the church. But so the annulment process becomes an important step to bring them back into full unity within the church. So Francis streamlined the process to make it quicker. I don't like saying easier because mm. the same standards exist. As you already mentioned the law doesn't change as far as what a marriage is, but what we've done is streamline the process so that it's easier for those going through to receive an answer quicker. Uh, and there's no guarantee about the timing because every case is different, Exactly. obviously, but, but it can be a significant uh, lessening of time. In Texas before, with the second in court, it was taking a long time. People were maybe, it was taking upwards of maybe five years. Right now, we're at a year. Now, the we have a good challenge to face right now. More people are coming forward seeking the annulment process. Right. So as more people come forward, we have more cases on our desk. Which might cause there to be more problems, but it's a good problem to have exactly. because it causes, as you said, it's a fluid. Canon law is fluid in the sense that we, uh, the church, she addresses the things that, that exactly. come forth. Exactly. Right? And so hopefully the Holy Spirit will send another dose of wisdom upon exactly. all of our leaders exactly. to help this law to be something that's that's beneficial to the salvation exactly. of, of all these. Because they're seeking the sacraments. They're, they're exactly. seeking union with the church, and that's, that's certainly it. And then that's really the point, the, you know, as you just brought up, that all of this is us responding to the needs to bring people to Christ. Right, not making people jump through hoops. That's exactly. the last thing that we do. It's, it's all done in love. Far too often I encounter people who actually misuse the law or misunderstand the law and they will use the law to to block people they use the law to if you will to assault people and keep them away from christ and again if you're doing that that's actually an abuse of the law it's not the problematic and also i I think people are kind of familiar with the 1917 code the 1983 code and i know there are some things that were written in 1917 that are not covered like for instance the chapel veils the mantilla the the wearing of the veil and so there are people who will still quote the canon from 1917, and it's not, it doesn't appear in 1983. Correct. And they'll say it's still in force. No, no. Right. So How, it's how very clear. the understanding of that? One of the first canons in the 1983 code says that any laws that were issued before the issuing of this code no longer hold force. And so any laws that were there in the 1917 code, which weren't rewritten, are no longer binding on Catholics. They can do it if they want. Sure, as a and personal it's a beautiful preference. devotion for right. a person a person who wants to wear a veil. And there's right. certainly no judgment on anyone who exactly. decides that. I know many fine and wonder people, wonderful women who do, but the question is, what happens when that person right. turns to the woman and says, "Why aren't you wearing a veil?" Right. 
Then, of course, we have the converse problem that many people think that the new code, the new law, took away things which it didn't. For example, Friday fast. The, the law still asks for us to make some of sort penance. of penance, penance on Friday. Most people tell you, oh, the law got rid of that. You know, Friday you can do whatever you want, and it's only during Lent we have to worry about it. But no, the law still asks that every Friday is a day of penance. So often we, we have both problems, people who want to hold to what the laws that existed before yeah. and those who want to get rid of laws that are still in effect that they don't think should have any force anymore. We've said on the show before that every Sunday celebrates the resurrection. So exactly. that means that every Friday is a little mini Good Friday. Exactly. Right? We have to experience that sense exactly. of penance. The, the difference in the new code is that it doesn't have to be a day of fasting or you don't have to abstain from meat every Friday. You can make some other act of right. penance, but the code still does ask for you to do it. Again, why is it trying to force you to do something? Is it trying to hit you over the head? No, it's forcing you to seek holiness, and we seek holiness through sacrifice and through the sacrifice through joining in the resurrection of our so Lord. So it's important for us, I guess— Again, to revisit the whole purpose and meaning of the laws, it's not essentially following rules because then we get in trouble. We've had many examples in Scripture with the Pharisees and where right. the letter of the law became so right. apparent that it would, be, it, would be, it would be weighty on the people. It would, right. it would weigh them down. Again, I mean, the best thing I could say is the law is there to guide you to holiness. So if it's there and it's something you struggle with, it means there's something you probably need to work on to seek holiness. Um, but so, again, it, its whole point there is so that we can meet Christ, so we can encounter Christ, so we can dwell with him in eternal life. And that is the point of it. And if we take it out of that context, we miss everything that is going on. The law in itself is inherently flexible because different people need different things at different times in their life in order to, to gain holiness, in order to meet Christ where they are. So the law is there to allow us to meet people where they are and to bring them to Christ as they are so that they can be guided step by step into eternal life. Yeah, the law of love is is, is paramount. I mean, and it comes from uh, a God who is love, uh, and it's in, in love, just like the love of parents for their right. children, uh, how beautiful this, the, this is that we the have struggle The struggle in this day and age that we have to keep these two things in tension, the truth and the love. Mm. If we choose pastoral charity over all else and ignore the truth, we're missing the point. If we choose the truth above all else and ignore love, we're missing the point. But the law is supposed to help us wed those two things together. And if we can do that, we're right where we need to be. And we're where we need to be at the end of our show. Uh, Father Luke Millette, thank you so much for enlightening us about uh, no, the love. Thanks for having me. The love of canon law, which maybe we haven't referred to it as that, but it's a, it certainly <laughs> is a canon law of love. Anyway, thank you, Father Luke, for being here with us. And we're going to end our program, as we'd love to do here in Lourdes especially, uh, as we're close to Our Lady. Let's end with a Hail Mary. Okay. Hail Mary, Hail Mary full, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. Visit us on the web at thecatholiccafe.com, where you can find out more information about The Catholic Cafe, listen online, download MP3s, or subscribe to our podcast. You can also find us on iTunes or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send him an email at deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta, Federal Association, 
and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from the Most Reverend Martin D. Holly, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe, serving up salvation one cup of coffee at a time.